you know, there's only so many hours of deep work, as Cal Newport calls it, that you can do in a day. And people's people's beliefs about how many that is can vary, but I don't know anybody who said that it's over six on a consistent basis, and it's probably closer to two to four. And so if you think of two to four hours a day as the max uh, kind of focused uh, generative work you could do, even in the best case with, with no limits, just your human limits, with no kind of schedule constraints or anything, then I think that that casts things in a really different light. I don't think I thought about that when I was in my peak productivity obsession. You know, I just thought that if I did the right things and maybe ate the right foods and, you know, did the right hacks, I would just get more, get more of that time and then everything would be okay. episode is brought to you by winging it that's where you can find my audio course on honing your intuition it's designed to help you stop second guessing and start living your heart out you can find it at winging-it.net hello diana hello lisa welcome to should we creative conversations about the everyday choices that make us Okay, and today um, uh, we have like, uh, I think a hot topic. So as soon hot. As, I, as soon as I say that, it brings me right back to like the 90s and that store. Mm-hmm. Malls. Um, yeah. Okay, so dun, dun, dun. Should we be productive? Should we be productive is a very interesting question. I think sometimes we ask questions where we just want to talk about, you know, why yes, <laughs> you know, like if you want to, but I think that this has a societal angle too. Where does the idea of productivity come from? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, my initial gut response to the question is like, no, <laughs> not, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> It's a, it's a trap. And uh, yeah, like, I, I don't believe in productivity. I mean, should we get things done that we need and want to do on a reasonable, humane time frame? Sure. Yes, I am on board with that. But should we be productive? No, because you know what would you know what the ideal is, there is like, a machine or a robot. Robots and machines are maximum productive. And we're not robots and machines. And I don't want to be a robot or a machine. And um, I don't want to hang out with them either. <laughs> um, and I'm also thinking about this amazing phrase that you mentioned the other day, macho productivity. We need to talk about that. Oh, definitely. Well, macho productivity is a phrase I used when I was sending you a piece, the aesthetics of which I objected to, but one small point of which I agreed with. <laughs> and 
I think of matcha productivity as being this very like uh, everyday carry, like minimize your minimize your wallet so that it's as thin as possible. You know, use the ultimate software to create the ultimate system. That means you, you know, you're just like you are just like a machine. You know, you're just churning out things that matter, you know, and you're really thinking about what your best life is. But you can tell from my, you know, you can tell from my tone that this is an aesthetic objection more than it is a topic objection. The the face you're making helps too, though. <laughs> it's really too bad that our listeners can't see the face. But like, I, I start to imagine the archetype of the person who aspires like primarily in their life to maximum productivity. This person lives in a white box. They have no soft cushions in that. Nothing is soft in their house. And everything is like a surface that you could most efficiently wipe clean. Mm -hmm. Um, And they don't have maybe any colors in their house and they don't have any joy. And maybe no love. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think of macho productivity as uh, characteristically young. You know, it's something that it's really hard to hold on to once and if you experience frailty of any kind, yours or anyone else's as well as um, children, if children enter your life in any way, you know, that kind of productivity is pretty hard to keep up. But, you know, it is the aesthetic of productivity that's present in a lot of the personal productivity literature, um, especially the kind of derivative literature, by which I mean sort of productivity podcasts. And I listen to a lot of those, by the way, you know, like even though I'm talking, talking bad about them, I spend a lot of my time listening to them in part because listening to other people's visions of productivity prevents me from worrying for as long as I'm listening to them. And I realized that productivity as hobby can be a a kind of preventative medicine against anxiety. But here's the thing, productivity is itself sold as preventative medicine against anxiety, if you really look deeply into it, which we can get into. But what I realize is I don't actually have to be productive. I just have to listen to other people talking about productivity and that's good enough. (laughs) Okay, this is fantastic. It's also like, I feel like there have been revelations about like, oh, I don't need to clean my house. I can watch a show of someone else decluttering or whatever. And that's satisfying enough. That'll do it for me. Oh, yeah. This has been a a meta realization across all areas of my life. I realized that if I have a belief that I am deficient in some way, I should just watch a video about someone else resolving that deficiency with hobby like glee, and then we'll be good. Um, So like, yes, watching other people clean works great. Organizing shows on Netflix, fantastic. You know, there's a whole genre on YouTube that you can dive deep into of other people cleaning their homes. Highly enjoyable. Um, Watching other people plan in their beautiful bullet journals, much better than planning myself. 
Um, and it's cheaper. You don't have to buy supplies for whatever thing it is you're you're interested in. Exactly. All you have to do is spend the time on it. And it's such a relief to realize that, you know, we may not be able to become uh, our best selves truly and deeply, but we can realize that uh, our perceived gaps, we can, uh, we can just heal them temporarily by watching other people do stuff. <laughs> okay. I, I'm so excited that we're talking about this topic because I actually, I think of you as a treasure trove of information on productivity uh, because of your hobby. <laughs> and, and also like, I, I do think of you as a highly productive person in the good way. I, what I mean is I am often amazed at how much you are able to get done and also how many meaningful things. So, so I feel like I'm, I'm going to learn a lot. And, and also I feel like I need to, I don't know, make some kind of disclaimer or something that because I am a leadership coach, it happens from time to time that potential clients will come to me thinking I might be a productivity coach, you know, and like productivity is really what they want to work on. Now, it also happens probably much more frequently that people come to me and they say productivity is what they want to work on. And, and you know, I, so I just get curious about that. Okay. Um, uh, what is it that you want to be productive about? Um, and what's getting in the way? Just a couple of simple questions like that. And like pretty soon we're crying mm -hmm. or something, you know, <laughs> like, because it's never, I mean, most of the time it's not about finding the right productivity tool or system or mindset or reading the right book or trying a new app. Like most of the time, like what's going on is uh, someone has a bunch of things they think they must do that they don't want to do for sometimes a really deep down reason, you know? And so we may end up at the end of that conversation with like deciding that they're actually not going to do it or, um, you know, deciding that, oh, they're completely overwhelmed and a lot of other things need to not happen in order for them to do it. Um, or they really, it is something they actually care about, they want to do, and they just needed to reconnect with why they're doing it, to reconnect with their values. So like, that's the path I end up down with my clients. And it's just like once in a while I'll get someone who's like, wait, we're not going to talk about um, ma matrices and uh, timers and stuff. And I'm like, no. So sometimes I do mention the thing with the quadrants, Eisenhower matrix, is yeah, that what it's called? You got yeah, it. Yeah. Got it. I can't even remember the name of it, but sometimes I mention it and I ramble. I'm like, you know, with the squares and important but not urgent, urgent but not important, and the other ones, uh -huh. you know. But like, this is not my specialty at all. I really care so much more about 
meaning and fulfillment and uh, being kind to ourselves. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you and I, even since the beginning of Should We, have been on our own individual and shared journeys around burnout and ambition and all of these things. And it's all there on the record, snapshots in time, you know, of our past five years or so that anyone can go listen to. But I would say that both of us are in a moment of kind of maximum softness, you know, and like softness is the goal, softness is the thing, and, uh, you know, anything else is garbage. Um, yeah, so softness toward ourselves, which is called for all over the place right now, especially right now. Um, and yet, we, we have to recognize, like, sometimes we need to get things done, and mm -hmm. other people do too. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think my own disclaimer about productivity is that I, as an investor, am highly interested in productivity apps. You know, that's one of my categories, uh, I would say, of, of strongest interest. And that's been kind of funny for me to be so interested in it. Coming from this hobby angle where I just think it's fun to think about how to make the most of the time we have, uh, but also because I have all these kind of knife through the heart observations about it that I love sharing with uh, founders and seeing how they react, you know, like, uh, oh, you know, the thing about the thing about to-do lists is that there will never be enough time to get done everything that would be good to do, you know, and like just see what they have to say about it. So, um, so I think uh, that- I, Also, I love what you said about um, productivity as making the most of the mm -hmm. time we have. Oh, Diana, that's so nice. That's so tender. I'm, I'm, you could start to convert me to productivity with a slogan like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that I still do spend time thinking about it in part because of what you said about the stuff we've just got to get done, but also because I think I'm so in tune with my own limits as a parent of two young kids now that I just have, you know, maybe two good hours a day that I can use, you know, at my discretion. Uh, and I'm not even talking about for fun. I'm saying like also for work, you know, there's just a certain amount of time every day that is spent just keeping my head above water. And then there's maybe two flex hours. And so making the most of those hours really takes a lot of forethought, but it's very satisfying when I feel like, yeah, I did something that I wouldn't have done without planning. Hmm. I that makes me curious also about your journey with productivity, because, I mean, you used to be more of like a believer, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, definitely. You know, I was a believer in productivity. I was my at my max in terms of being a believer in college, I would say, when I would read this blog called Life Hacker every day. And I would read it while I was procrastinating from doing my schoolwork. Uh, so that was a, a funny relationship to have, you know, reading about productivity while I was procrastinating. Um, and that was a moment where the, the very thoughtful writers on that blog and also other places were themselves in a in a moment of being believers, you know. I, it, since then, almost every productivity thinker I remember from that era, which was you know 07 through 09, I would say, 
has turned against productivity and become an anti-productivity evangelist. Um, Wait, so, really? Yeah. I didn't know this. So are you saying I'm very on trend? Very on trend, very on trend. I think that some of it though is that they just, uh, oh, I don't know. I think each of them had a different experience, but some of them just got older, you know, like we did. And I think that uh, productivity in its purest form is sort of a sport for the young and unencumbered. Uh, but, uh, but I think that, uh, yeah, watching them become disillusioned with it definitely impacted my beliefs about it. I think that, you know, I, I went through another cycle of maximum productivity belief when I moved back to the U.S. from Germany at the end of 2015. And there was kind of a, a swirl of events that came together then. I was back on my home turf and I really wanted to make the most of it. And, you know, you and I were living in the same city at the same time. And so there was lots I wanted to do with you, like work on the beginnings of this podcast. And that turned into having, you know, running a Kickstarter campaign together and then creating an LLC and doing all kinds of things that we've since wound down, you know, but I think that actually this podcast is a part of me, as I said at the time, leading, you know, a quintuple life or something. I had so many threads running in parallel, one of which was trying to do a good job at my new job. Um, and so that period was very quote unquote productive in terms of output, but also very high cost because I can now recognize that I essentially burned out. And that burnout never manifested as taking a huge break or, you know, failing at one of my major, you know, responsibilities in life. But it, you know, I didn't sort of hard fail at anything that was like a major, a major character in my weeks. But the, the main consequence was that I really struggled to enjoy any spare time I had, and there wasn't a lot. And so um, because I didn't have a lot of margin to my life, I was always in kind of recovery mode whenever a spare moment came up and completely overwhelmed by the number of different threads that could possibly occupy that time. And it just meant that that time quote unquote off was so miserable that I did anything I could to minimize it, which only made the problem worse. And so it took a lot of different things to crawl out of that. Um, but I think that one of them was pregnancy, um, which, you know, I, I don't really think I could have gotten pregnant in that state. I mean, I tried and it, it didn't really work. And so I think that, you know, needing to, needing to be in a place where I could uh, kind of receive new life, you know, meant that I had to logistically remove a few responsibilities from my life. I knew that part, but what I didn't realize was that I was also kind of clearing margin that I just needed to experience a certain amount of before I could be myself again. Mm, yeah, that really resonates with me, what you said about not having any margin and then the free time you had during that phase was miserable because you're, you're just recovering and you, you probably never get fully restored. Um, so it's like, you're just, just always running on empty. Yeah. And, you know, 
I, I didn't really think about the way that manifested was people would ask me about hobbies and I would sort of laugh or I would talk about my projects or something, but it really was bad. You know, I, I really couldn't, um, I, I couldn't really enjoy anything that I wasn't accountable for because I was only bringing any energy at all to the things I was accountable for. Um, so I'm glad I'm out of that now for sure. Um, yeah, I'm curious about your journey and then maybe we can talk about where we're both at now. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, gosh, I would say from the earliest I could remember, uh, my kindergarten or first grade or something until, I don't know, some, some point, uh, maybe in my late 20s or maybe just a few years ago, um, I was uh, trying to do as much as possible all the time and didn't have margins really. Um, and I ended up experiencing a few different uh, burnout periods. One was in grad school when I got mono and I remember people asking me like, how did you get it? Like, and oh my gosh, if you know someone who has mono, don't ask them that question. And definitely not in such a like tantalizing voice because it's like you feel like you're on the brink of death and everyone's like, ooh, did you have a spicy adventure? <laughs> like, <laughs> no. <laughs> I, honestly, like, it's, you know, they would ask me that question and I just felt even worse because it was like, well, let me tell you, I can put all the pieces together. Um, I, I took six classes instead of four. I also had like a very demanding teaching job and I decided to take up running and I only slept a few hours a night for like, I don't know, several weeks. It only took like a month or something for me to just crash and burn completely. Uh, and then I thought, oh, I learned my lesson. I'm never gonna do that again, ever, ever, ever. I'll always live a very balanced and healthy life. And then I went to work at startups. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Very funny. Dun, dun, dun. So I ran myself into the ground a couple more times and then ended up uh, discovering I had some some chronic health problems, chronic pain and chronic fatigue, which is like kind of hilarious. I mean, it's not that hilarious, but it was hilarious because I, I actually have chronic fatigue, but I didn't sleep very much and worked nonstop. Uh, so <laughs> I was just trying to outrun my tiredness. I was afraid. I think a lot of, you know, the, the thing about idolizing productivity is the fear of being human, of having um, needs, having uh, weakness, having limits, as you've mentioned before. And yeah, it really scared me. But there was a point where my body just wouldn't let me do it anymore. I was like, you know what? now we're going to have to sleep for a really long time because <laughs> of what you've done. <laughs> yeah. 
So I did finally make a commitment also related to wanting to have kids that I made a commitment to my health, really my health and well-being that I was going to have to scale way, way back, really just change my whole lifestyle and mindset um, uh, in order to have space in my life for the things that actually mattered to me, which were like family, which had pretty much no space in my life before that. Yeah, completely. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting to think about where we both landed with that, you know, thinking back on some of our past conversations on this podcast, we've acknowledged that the ambition that we felt and chased at earlier points in our lives and careers wasn't wrong. You know, it got us here. I think that it's totally reasonable to have a mindset where you're chasing multiple threads as hard as you can because you don't know what's going to work and you don't know what is going to unlock the life you imagine. You know, it's possible, even if you're not talking about career success, you know, if you're trying to find a life partner to build a life and possibly family with, it's possible to you can burn yourself out on that too. You know, you can just, you know, try to do it to the max and kind of manage your funnel. And there's a way to turn that into a productivity gambit as well. You can turn anything into, you know, a burnout machine. Um, yeah. But it's tempting to do that when you don't yet have the ingredients you think are necessary for the life you want. Yep. And also this connects with, you, you mentioned the societal angle when we started. And, you know, I, I just want to acknowledge that while I was uh, operating at top speed and kind of destroying my body along the way, I was rewarded greatly for my remarkable productivity, for being kind of superhuman um, and uh, being so committed to doing as much as possible, usually for my employers. So it wasn't like, well, once in a while you get a really great manager who cares about your your well-being and and worries about you burning out. But um, just in general, uh, our uh, society and many employers are are not gonna like particularly help you um, uh, decide uh, to put margins into your days and your weeks and make sure that you restore yourself. It's, it's like, it, it's, it's going against the current, certainly. Yeah, and I still don't know what I would say to someone early career about what the right way to think about it is, you know, because I'm not sure that I would have had some of the experiences and opportunities I've had if I didn't go up, quote unquote, above and beyond at certain points. But I do think that above and beyond isn't synonymous with burnout guaranteed. I think that above and beyond is about what you do relative to expectations. And actually somebody asking you to do more and more and more and more and more 
if you do everything they ask, you're still just meeting expectations. Above and beyond only happens when you do something that wasn't asked for. And so it, it can be, um, both can be true. You can work on how to get into a situation where what is expected of you is reasonable and think about what you genuinely want to add that's above and beyond that, that takes you in the direction of what matters to you and the organization or cause you're working for in the, in the direction of what matters to them and find, find that um, instead of just doing everything and more. Um, it makes me wonder like if you could go back and talk to your younger self, like, like who was in those phases of maximum productivity, like what would you say? Oh, hmm. Well, the most helpful thing I've learned from having many limits now is that I had them anyway. I just wasn't acknowledging them. Uh, you know, there's only so many hours of deep work, as Cal Newport calls it, that you can do in a day. And people's people's beliefs about how many that is can vary, but I don't know anybody who said that it's over six on a consistent basis. And it's probably closer to two to four. And so if you think of two to four hours a day as the max uh, kind of focused uh, generative work you could do, even in the best case with, with no limits, just your human limits with no kind of schedule constraints or anything, then I think that that casts things in a really different light. I don't think I thought about that when I was in my peak productivity obsession. You know, I just thought that if I did the right things and maybe ate the right foods and, you know, did the right hacks, I would just get more, get more of that time and then everything would be okay. I didn't want to have to acknowledge how, how little I had to give. But once you do, you make different trade-offs. Very interesting. There was a lot of wisdom jam-packed into that, uh, that advice for your younger self. I think with my younger self, like probably the two main things I would say is, number one, your work is not going to love you back. Uh, you can find fulfilling work, you can enjoy, you can have meaningful relationships with your colleagues, but um, it's not the whole pie of life. Like there are just a lot of other uh, components of life that matter so much. And, um, and then the other thing I would have told my younger self that I really didn't know or didn't believe is that there's an inflection point of enough income for you. That's what I would have said. Like, hello from the future. There's an enough point and you've already hit it. So you need to work on the other variables to improve your life. Um, and uh, I think that my younger self would not have listened. She would have smiled politely and be like, wow, yeah, thank you. I really appreciate your advice. And she would write a thank you note really quickly afterwards and everything. And she would be like, I'm definitely not listening <laughs> to that old lady. <laughs> she, does, she doesn't know me. She doesn't understand where I come from and how 
how much I need. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing is that when you're in the, when you're in a lane that you aren't happy with, it can be hard to imagine what could ever be enough. And I think that that's part of what you were bringing up when you talked about how people approach you with coaching questions. You know, a lot of the time, the answer to there's all this stuff that I need to do that I'm not doing is you're just in a job that you don't like at all, you know, or even a career, <laughs> you know, an overall career category that is not for you. And that can be tough to recognize, but sometimes it's the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Diana, this stuff is really hitting me hard. We're going deep today. And I, I was just kind of wondering, like, just there's a part of me that was wondering, but are you going to share pr really great productivity tips or tools or like what's on the horizon with productivity trips? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. Um, you know, I am still a hobbyist in this uh, and it still brings me some kind of maybe joy is not the right word, but it's very engaging to me to think about. And, you know, as I mentioned before, I think it all comes from this idea that what productivity culture is actually about is staving off anxiety by making you feel like you're in control. And once you realize that, it doesn't mean that you need to uh, kind of, you know, say no to control just means that I have to realize that when I'm meticulously grooming my calendar, that's me implementing my need for control. You know, that's something that I do to feel like I've got it, you know, I've got, I've got a handle on things. It's not necessarily necessary. Um, it's just a way of making myself feel better. And there can be nice side effects from it, but certainly if you don't experience anxiety about you know, your schedule, don't worry about all of those things that hobbyists do to optimize their planners and their calendars and their color coding. Like those people are managing their anxiety with, uh, with creative control, you know, and <laughs> if, if that's not the problem you have, uh, then you probably should do something different. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think also the, a benefit of your hobby is that now that you're in a different place and you're not um, uh, buying into productivity culture, you can use some of those tools for like, you know, your two hours in the day. Like, like sometimes you really, it helps you get the most out of those couple of hours. Yeah, exactly. And to finally answer your question about my great productivity tips, um, you know, let's see, I think that it all comes down to calendaring and journaling for me, which is not so different from what the bullet journalists do. I don't know if anyone listening to this is familiar with the productivity subculture of bullet journaling, but there's a lot of very artistic individuals who uh, post videos to YouTube of their weekly planner, quote unquote, spreads which are their own kind of planner layouts that they put into paper notebooks. They use a lot of great markers, some great stickers, 
and it is very soothing for a certain type of person to watch. And that certain type of person is me. If it's you <laughs> as well, I would recommend Amanda Reach Lee as an entry point into this universe. And uh, we will put a link to that in the description. Um, so calendaring and journaling are things that I do, not in a paper notebook, but on my computer. And that works fine for me. Some people find it doesn't work for them because the computer is full of too many anxiety producing things. Um, and if that's you, then paper is probably a great solution. For me, I have enough positive connotations uh, of computers with kind of my like high school self or something who just loved spending hours, you know, typing on my laptop in bed. I didn't have a laptop in high school, but let's say college self, um, that my computer is not in itself an object of anxiety. So with my calendar, I use Google Calendar for work and personal life. And Few of my tips are that one, you can color code within a single calendar. A lot of people don't know this. They think they have to create different calendars to have different colors show up. Not true. You can control click if you're on a Mac on any calendar event and change the color. Um, this is great. I do it a lot when I'm just trying to kind of uh, groom my calendar, you know, do a little bit of calendar gardening. I'll have different ideas about, oh, I want to see my week this way, or, oh, that meeting's going to be stressful, so I'll color it this way, or that meeting's not going to be stressful at all. I'm just one person of many um, in the meeting. I'll color it a different color so that I don't feel too overwhelmed when I'm looking at my day, or, oh, I'm going to add a transit buffer between these two meetings. And so I'm gonna color it dark blue and that'll help me realize that that's what it's about. It's very enjoyable for me to create all of these different, uh, different twists and ways of looking at things. And it's just a way to meditate on time. Um, so that's tip number one. Um, tip number two with calendars is, I mentioned it, it in the last point, but adding lots of buffers all over the place. And this can be really helpful if you have uh, you know, a shared calendar that's visible to your organization, whether it's just through free, free, free busy status being visible or through the event titles being visible. Um, but I try to add you know, a lunch buffer every day that's just a recurring event and I label it you know, lunch, uh, eat lunch, movable. And then other people who are working with my calendar, including my colleagues and anyone else know that, oh, it's fine. Like I can book over it. But I know that I shouldn't make it, I shouldn't let it go so that there's no buffer in my calendar. You know, like I, it's still a puzzle piece I have to move around. If somebody books over yeah. it, I move it to one of the adjacent slots. And that means that my days never get completely booked back to back. This can be tricky in a larger organization where there's lots of uh, sort of calendar games of chicken going on where people will just book over anything that doesn't look quote unquote real, highly problematic. In that situation, what I would do is um, change all of my buffers to uh, like private or something. So, with the, so the setting is that only I can see the detail or the title or who it's with. So it looks like, oh my gosh, like this must be super important. It's like confidential. <laughs> that could work, but I think people probably get wise to it if there's multiple yeah. in a day with my my so-called lunch buffer another There's so much so much calendar scheming I'm so like much guessing calendar. what other people are doing 
Completely. One of the other strategies, you know, at my last organization, we used Google Calendar as well, but it was huge, you know, it was very large. But uh, because it was large, the organization-wide setting was to only make free busy status visible. So this reduced the amount that people thought they could quote unquote book over things, but not totally because it turned out any 60 minute plus block on the calendar, like anything that was over an hour, people would assume was like a focus block and therefore believe they could book over. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is super funny. Also, uh, okay, it's reminding me your color coding thing. Yes, I also color code my calendar. Um, and it, it's sometimes in ways that wouldn't make sense to another person. It's just like, this needs to be a different color than everything else because I, I need to double check that I don't forget it. <laughs> um, but another thing I've used with clients is, um, especially if they're, they're feeling really stressed about their schedule, their week, or just overwhelmed with negative feelings about work, I'll have them go back and color code the calendar from the last week or more in red, yellow, green. What were the meetings that were red, like just awful, made you feel really terrible? Yellow is like, oh, it was kind of neutral, fine. And then green is like meetings that actually like gave you energy you and you loved it. And then it can be really telling to go back and some people might find, holy cow, there's like so much red in my calendar. But what happens more often is the discovery that there's more green than they realized and that the one or two red things are overshadowing everything else. Completely. I highly uh, recommend this strategy as well. And I recently did that because I had this hunch that I was taking too many meetings that I shouldn't, like that I knew in advance I shouldn't, but I was just taking to be nice or whatever. So I tested that theory by going back and color coding my calendar according to meetings that I should have known in advance that I shouldn't take. And it was like only two hours worth for the whole week. And I realized that worrying about this as a quote unquote problem is causing more problems than just being okay with it. I mean, two hours a week is not that bad. And so, yeah, I can optimize it, but it shouldn't be occupying, you know, it shouldn't be haunting my dreams. Like it's fine. You know, there's, there's always a little bit of slippage in a schedule. Um, so yeah, I think that it can really change how we see ourselves. I did a similar exercise when I was feeling super overwhelmed, one of my previous jobs, and I counted up all of the hours, including the secret hours that I was spending after working hours, to try to figure out how many hours a week I was spending on work. And I really thought it was like 65. It turned out it was like 43, um, which is so fine. It's just that you know, there were other things going on in my life. And so not all of those hours were during working hours, but that's not my job's problem. <laughs> you know, um, one of the other interesting things that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that just counting up uh, can also be a way of, of getting clarity about what's, what's going on for you. So there's all kinds of things we can do with our calendars to get perspective as well as kind of landscape things to be more desirable and give you more energy. I think that another great way to deal with color coding red, yellow, green is to look at the greens and then try to make more like those or try to figure out um, how the sequencing of things affects how you feel. Like recently I've realized that 
whatever my last meeting of the day is strongly impacts how I feel all evening. Sounds obvious, but I actually have a lot of control over what that last meeting of the day is because of the nature of my work as an investor. You know, every meeting is an independent event, essentially, and no one cares if I optimize for scheduling something specific into the last slot of the day. And so I've just been seeing whether I can book in calls with people I know and like into the last slot of the day. And I feel amazing going into the evening. So there's oh, all- Oh, that's uh, wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's really great. But I only get those observations from going back and reflecting on how I've spent time already. So um, yeah. yeah, I think calendar, calendar is reflection tool is definitely underrated uh, and something that I, I think a lot of people could get insight from. Um, I think there's, there's like a, a bigger theme here, which is that, you know, if you're too focused on productivity, you can undervalue pausing to reflect yes. on what is going on. So this, and I'm imagining journaling, which you mentioned are both, they take time and they don't have a like deliverable. They're not about output. And yet they can make a big difference in your overall like satisfaction and quality of life. Exactly. And I think that doing those reflection, uh, doing those reflection tasks can be a way of, uh, you can do that instead of procrastinating, like instead of avoiding the thing that you know you should be doing, you can just do reflection instead and see if by the end of the reflection, you feel more like doing the thing you think you should be doing. And if not, that's not that surprising, but that was going to be the default state anyway. Um, so yeah, with journaling, and this is a more recent discovery about how this can fit into uh, my day, but for a long time, you and I have had this practice of writing each other letters, just instead of writing a private journal. You know, this is something that uh, it's like writing to a journal, but better because the journal writes back, you know, and the journal in this case is, uh, is uh, our best friends. Um, and this work and it ha it happens over email. It happens actually. over email, right? Not not over you know beautiful uh, stationery sent by email. Um, so yeah, what I've realized, you know, we, we've been doing this for years, and often I would do it first thing in the morning or not at all. What I've realized more recently is that I can do it in the middle of the day. Um, and so, you know, right now it's pretty common for me to have a block of meetings and then another block of meetings, but have like 90 minutes in between. And I might have this goal for the 90 minutes of, you know, I would be really great if I worked on that blog post that I've been needing to write, but it's so hard to get in the mood, especially when I'm between two kind of interactive blocks. But what I've been realizing is that if I devote 30 minutes, the first 30 minutes of that 90 minute block to like processing all of my thoughts and feelings in the form of essentially an email to you. Uh, then at the end of it, I can kind of talk myself into doing at least 20 minutes of work on whatever creative project I had in mind. And that's still so much better than nothing. And, you know, at the end of writing to you, I have some insight about why I'm resisting the project or what else in my life I'm resisting. And, you know, using writing as a way to transition private writing, like semi-private writing, I guess, because I send it to you, but um, just time inside my own head um, to process my thoughts and feelings actually does let me do whatever's next in a way that creates more quote unquote productivity, but it means taking time out for reflection first. Yeah, yeah. And 
I also want to like clarify that we we do this in like a pretty selfish way, you know, your letters are about you, mine are about me. We're often, we're rarely actually responding to the other, you know, sometimes we might send a message like, oh, that was so great, you know, or whatever, or I'm feeling the same way. But otherwise, it really is just like uh, two parallel journals mm -hmm. that are going back and forth. Um, and the, uh, that it's just like what you said, by the end of a letter, I'm writing to you about myself. I've usually figured something out or gotten unstuck. So we don't have to fix things for each other. We just have to receive the letter. And another thing, this this has solved so many things for us. And and one thing it has solved, I think for both of us, is social media. Like, <laughs> I don't have a social media problem because, um, like, I don't get really sucked into it. I'm not that uh, susceptible to many of the challenges of social media because Diana is my social media channel. I get all the, all the content I need to satisfy my curiosity about other people's lives and the inner workings of their minds just from Diana. <laughs> it's so true. And, you know, uh, it's, it's amazing to think that, you know, people send off these messages hoping for hearts or hoping for something and you can just guarantee that by sending it to, to one person. Um, yeah, I mean, it, we do have a very special relationship, but I also think that, um, it's possible for more people than currently do it. I'm confident that not enough people on the planet, uh, employ this practice. Yeah, yeah, I think it is really great, and 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 it works best with somebody who gets that you don't have to fix anything for each other. You just you just are there as a loyal reader. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that feeling like uh, you know your life is enjoyable to someone else, even in all of its ups and downs. You know, noticing how uh, noticing how some of my complainiest letters are the most satisfying to you. <laughs> they totally are. They totally are. We have to each remind each other sometimes that like, like if, if you never suffered <laughs> and if everything always went great, like reading the TV show of your life would be so boring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so nice to, to not have to perform for each other. And I think that I get by far the most insight from just being able to tune in to whatever's really going on for me and knowing that um, it'll be fun for you to read. It's also when you take, talk about social media, you know, if I'm kind of bored and I would like that social media hit, but what I really want is, you know, another episode from my favorite TV show, AKA Life of Lisa. The best way for me to elicit that is to write my own letter. So even if I don't have that much to process, just reminding you that it's a thing by doing it myself is probably <laughs> going to have the result that I that I crave. It works very well. Uh, we also each do usually respond to direct requests for just another letter. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I feel like um, I w I was thinking like how can this apply for someone who really doesn't have someone off the top of their head that they want to do this with. And I was thinking, okay, 
you know, a lot of this could still happen through journaling on your own, just taking the lens that you're writing to someone. Uh, mm -hmm. Just it could be someone you, just someone you like, whatever. Someone who would be that believing me, or it could be a character in a book, whatever. So you turn the journal into a set of letters. And then also I was thinking like, okay, maybe we need to make journals that like lovingly ask you for more and tell you that your life is just fascinating. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, there's definitely, I think that most of the value comes from uh, doing the reflection and the hack that we've found is about um, different kind of motivation loops for getting it to happen more often. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that a journal that talks back isn't a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, because it just felt, I, I mean, I, my whole life I've been obsessed with like journals and diaries. Oh, when I was little, I wanted a diary with a lock and then I got one, but I never would stick with it, you know? And so, it, cause it just felt boring to write like dear diary. But when you got a person on the other end, oh, that makes it very exciting. Very exciting. Well, you know, it's funny because I think this episode has really become about reflection, as you said. And so I guess that's the thing about making the most of your time is that reflection lets you think about how you're spending your time and think about what would make it better. And reflecting on your calendar or reflecting by journaling will usually lead to a few ideas for how to tweak things the next day, the mm -hmm. next week, you know, the next month. And it's that cycle of reflecting and tweaking that lets you inch toward the life you want. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's that uh, surprising tension between like, oh, I need to continue producing as much as possible versus, oh, wait, if I stop producing and reflect, that gives me a chance to figure out what matters the most and to optimize for making sure that happens. And if you find that pausing to be miserable, it, there's a good chance that you're on the edge of burnout or already in it, which might call for more radical changes. And uh, if that's the case, don't, don't get scared, stay calm, and maybe just read this great book called Burnout. Oh yeah, it's so good. It's so good. I'll put it in the show notes. Well, I think we figured it out, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> I think we answered the question. Should we be productive? No. Should we reflect? Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I uh, can't wait to talk with you again next time. See you soon, Lisa. Bye.